along life's road There will be sunshine and rain Roses and thorns Laughter and pain And cross the miles You will face mountains so steep Deserts so long and valleys so deep Sometimes the journey's gentle Sometimes the cold winds blow But I want you to remember Wherever you may go You will never walk alone As long as you have faith Jesus will be right beside you all the way And you may feel you're far from home But home is where he is And he'll be there down every road You will never walk alone will wind and you will find wonders and fears labors of love and a few falling tears across the years there will be some twists and turns mistakes to make and lessons to learn sometimes the journey's gentle Sometimes the cold winds blow But I want you to remember I want you to know You will never walk alone As long as you have faith Jesus will be right beside you all the way And you, you may feel you're far from home Home is where he is, and he'll be there down every road. You will never walk alone. Jesus knows your joy. Jesus knows your need. He will go the distance with you faithfully.
<clears throat> How can I? Oh, it's you, sir. I need a doppio espresso macchiato with non-fat milk. Okay. I need my beans ground fresh. Clean the filter while you're at it. Will do. Make sure you've got the pri- proper ratio of coffee to water. Yes, Let's sir. see. You'll need seven grams of coffee per shot. And since I ordered a doppio, that means you'll need 14 grams. Got it? Got it. Oh, and could you open a new bottle of whipped cream? But make sure you don't make the dollop too large. Will do. It affects the taste of the coffee. And for heaven's sake, could you use a clean cup this time? Is that clean enough? That'll do. That'll be $3. And 21 cents. Thank you. God bless. Well, God bless you too, sir. I wonder if he'll get it right this time. Can't they even clean a table off? I can't stand a wobbly table. It's filthy down here. I don't know how this place stays in business. Sir, your coffee's ready. Fresh to the ground, roasted beans, coffee about, beans. About time. Water and coffee ratio proportionate. Thank you. You're welcome. How is it? It'll do. Enjoy. That's a great book. I just finished it. Oh, yeah? I noticed you have quite the library there. Yes, I do. It's all part of being a good student of God's Word. You have to know some things. (laughs) Come here, I'll show you. This is a Greek Bible. I've got a Hebrew one around here somewhere. But this is important. If you want to really know what was going on back then, you have to go back to the original language. (laughs) You know, I have heard that. You see... I teach a Sunday school class, and teachers will be responsible for what they teach their students. And I want to know that what I'm telling them is right and true. (laughs) You seem like an awfully busy guy. What all do you do? Oh, wow. Lots! I teach a Sunday school class, like I said. It's an adult class, but I'm also involved with the children's ministry. Kids are great. They're so much fun to teach. (laughs) I love kids too. I took a group of teenagers to camp last summer. That was interesting. (laughs) I'm also doing some other things. I'm in some other ministries. I'm in the Awana ministry. I I sing in the choir. Acting, dramas, behind-the-scenes stuff. Anything else that you do? Oh, yeah. The camera ministry. Cameras, really? Oh, yeah. I'm just picking that up. (laughs) But it's hard. 
Our pastor, you can't keep an eye on him. He, he won't stand still for a second. You have to chase him around, huh? Constantly. <laughs> I've also been doing some studying lately. I want to make sure our church is heading in the right direction. What do you mean? Well, lately, we've been aiming outward a lot, bringing a lot of unsaved people to church. Mm, and that's a bad thing. Well, no, not exactly. But it definitely waters down the message of the Bible, I think. Where are the meat and potatoes of good Christian living? The congregation needs to know these things. What things? If all we do is focus on bringing people to Christ, what's going to happen to our church? I'll tell you. It'll be filled with people wearing indecent clothes, with unnatural shades of hair, listening to music with worldly beats in it. And even if the words are good, that beat just ruins it. <laughs> Where did you learn all of this? From my parents. It's what we did when I was a child, and it's what we should do now. Hmm. So, you don't actually believe that it's right. You just do it because it's what you've always been taught? It's what I grew up with. Hmm. But why is it right? Well, because... If God's people don't look, speak, and act different from the world, how will people know that we're Christians? There's this woman that comes in here once in a while, a real tacky woman. From what I'm told, she's been in four different relationships. Can you believe that? Well, her name is Sam, and actually it's five. Exactly! If Christians look like that and have histories like that, how will anyone know that we're holy, set apart? Yeah, but if all you do is learn about people instead of really getting to know them, I mean, how is anybody ever going to know that you love them? Love? Well, of course we love them. They just need to get their lives in order before they come to church. <laughs> What's your name? Nick. Hi, Nick. Let's have a little talk about love. I'd like to talk today to uh, <clears throat> some of you who maybe are reluctant to go to church. This might even be your first time in a church service like this, or maybe any church, and um, maybe one of the things that keeps you from attending church is the, some of the people who are there. Finish this out for me. I would go to church, but there are so many hypocrites in the church, and could I tell you as pastor, that is true. That is true. And it comes as no surprise to me, and it came as no surprise to Jesus. Jesus told a story one day about farming, and boy, we should understand that here in a rural state, a farm state like Kansas. He said there was a farmer who planted wheat in his field, and 
at night, some enemy of his came in and planted weeds that looked like the wheat. I'm told that the kind of plant Jesus was talking about was a Darnell plant that can look very similar to wheat, but when the heads are open, there's nothing there. And the servants of the farmer came to him and said, do we pull up the weeds? And the farmer said, no, if you pull up the weeds, you'll disturb the, the wheat plants. He said, let both of them grow together, and when the harvest comes, the reaper will be able to tell the difference. And that's what Jesus said about the church, that there are true believers and there are wannabes in the church. And we call those people hypocrites. Dr. George Truett, who pastored the great First Baptist Church of Dallas for the first half of the 20th century, took Jesus' story of the wheat and the tares, and he said that he believed that half, if you, he thought that Jesus' story was about a, a 50-50 equation, Dr. Truett anticipated that half of the people in the church were not really real. And if Dr. Truett would come to that conclusion in the early 20th century, what would he say about the church if he saw it today? I don't know. I have no idea if that's true or not. But I just want to say to those of you who visit a church, or maybe you came in here today, and you're saying, are you suggesting that, you're talking to me, are you suggesting that all the people who attend Messiah Baptist Church are true believers? And the answer is no, I don't think that for a moment. In fact, Jesus instructs me to believe that that's not the case. There are hypocrites in our church. But what is a hypocrite? We usually throw that term like a, like a slur. We throw it like a criticism, a condemnation. He's a hypocrite. She's a hypocrite. And what we're saying is there's a, there's a gap between the way they portray themselves and the way they really are. The word hypocrite comes from two Greek words that are put together. The first word is a prefix. The first part of the word is a prefix that you're probably familiar with. My wife was in the hospital this week, and they kept having to check her, her blood, and they would put a hypodermic needle into her to draw out blood. Hypo means under. Dermis is the skin. Hypodermic, under skin. It's the same prefix, hip for hippo. It, it is under. Krites is the Greek word for mask. A hypocrite is somebody who is under a mask. Actors in the days of the Bible, in the Greek culture, would put a mask in front of themselves that would change their appearance and sometimes augment their voice so that you could not see who the real person was. They would don the mask and assume the character. That is what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is somebody who moves into a religious system, puts on the mask, and performs behind the mask as if that is really the real person. But underneath the mask, there's someone different. And that is, that's what we have here. I can tell you, I've been in churches all my life. And, and in churches, I have found the most wonderful people in the world. And I have found some of the meanest people in the world. Because nothing will make you mean like hypocrisy. Kerry Stein, who is one of our trustees here at the church, is a, is a great student. He, he gave me a quote that came from a secular person. This person was not religious at all. But he, 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 he said this statement. And we would calibrate it differently because we come from a biblical perspective. But I want you to think about this is how a person on the outside views who we are. He said, without religion, good people would still do good things and bad people would still do bad things. But it takes religion to make good people do bad things. Now, again, I, I would 
view that statement a lot differently because I come from the perspective of the Bible and I say, well, nobody's good. We saw that in the first, first sermon and so on. But think about that's how a secular person views us. Good people would still do good things. Bad people would still do bad things. But it takes religion to make good people do bad things. But here's the point. Only in the life of a hypocrite. Because somebody who is a true follower of Jesus Christ will follow him. Anyone who is a true follower of Christ will behave like him. I know that some of you are in secular environments like, you know, college, university, or perhaps in the workplace. Someone will say to you, well, you're a Christian. Christians are behind some of the worst atrocities in history. What about the Crusades? Well, it's been a few years. But those were hypocrites. They were not the real thing. They were not the real believers. There's no, you look at the, the, what the purveyors of the crusade did and try to draw a line between them and Jesus, and you won't find any line. So yes, there are hypocrites in the church. And, and if you say, I would go to church except for the hypocrites, take it from a pastor standing before you, being open and candid. I am telling you, yes, there are hypocrites in the church. This is the greatest church I know, but there are hypocrites here at Messiah. And to be quite honest with you, there are gradations of hypocrisy, and when it gets right down to it, I would guarantee you that when you looked real closely at you and me, there would be some gap still between the way we are portrayed and the person we really are. But what about hypocrisy in the most terrifying sense, where a person may portray themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet he or she does not know Christ as Savior? Here's the deal. That person will go through the religious system all their lives, but when he comes to the point of death, if he remains a hypocrite, here's what will happen. His religion will do him absolutely no good, and he will go into an eternity that the Bible calls the lake of fire. That's scary. So I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about hypocrites and wannabes, and then in the process of time, I'd like to ask you two questions. This is for all of us here today. Here are two questions I want to ask you to get you thinking while I'm preparing to give this message to you. The first question is, do you think hypocrites want to be hypocrites? You know, we throw that slur like, wow, this lousy person, this lousy hypocrite. Do you think that hypocrites really want to be hypocrites? I mean, who would wake up and say, hey, I want to be a hypocrite? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a hypocrite. I want to embarrass God and embarrass my church and go out and live a life that, you know, and, and I want to pretend to be something that I'm not. When I grew up, I want to be a hypocrite. I don't think people want to be hypocrites. So if people don't want to be hypocrites, that begs another question. What, what causes a person to be a hypocrite? We're going to talk about that today. Second question I want to ask you is, is there any hope for a hypocrite? Is there any hope for a wannabe? You, you're here today, perhaps, and... Maybe already I've sort of sneaked in behind you, and, and I've asked a question that's made you very uncomfortable, and my guess is that the message today will make some people uncomfortable, maybe even make some people angry at me, because as I said, nobody is meaner than a hypocrite with attitude. Is there any hope for a hypocrite? Look in John 3. The Bible says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let's define terms here. 
He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the most religious people of Jesus' day. Just a little quick history. Two or three hundred years before Jesus came along, there was a liberal move among scholarship and the Jewish, among the Jewish people. And there were the liberal leaders, the scribes, who were saying that the miracles really didn't happen. There was no real such thing as a supernatural. There was nothing such as the resurrection and that the Bible was not the Word of God. And there arose a group of people that said, yes, the Bible is the Word of God, and we do believe in the miracles. And we are going to be so firm in what we believe that we're actually going to separate from the people who don't believe the Bible. Those people became known as the Pharisees. The very word Pharisee means separatist. Two or three hundred years before Jesus came along, they're probably the crowd that we would have hung with. Because they did believe the Bible, they did believe the miracles. But sometime within those two or three hundred years between the formation of the Pharisee movement and the birth of Jesus, their movement had devolved down to where it was just a matter of a belief system. It was just a matter of rules. It was a matter of form. The Bible talks about people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They're not really connected to the power. And that's how the Pharisees were. It, to them, it had just become a system by the time that Jesus came about. But make no mistake, these were extraordinary religious, extraordinarily religious people. They went to the house of worship three times a day. They prayed many times a day. They gave. They had rules. They had rules for how far they could travel on the Sabbath day. They had rules for how they could wash their hands, how much water they had to wash, the, for, the way they would hold their hands up when the water trickled down, the way they would hold their hands down as the water trickled. Uh, I mean, they just had every kind of imaginable rule for life, hundreds of rules. I could have never been a Pharisee. I bore easily, I have attention deficit disorder, and I don't like details. I guarantee you, I could not have been a Pharisee. This would not have been my gig. But these were the most religious people in Jesus' day. So this man who comes to see Jesus, this Nicodemus, he was a very religious man. But beyond that, he was a member of what history calls the Sanhedrin. It was a, a group of 70 men who were considered the greatest religious and Bible scholars of their time who sat in judgment on questions that arose within the Jewish community, and they would give an answer and say, this is what the Scripture says about your situation. Jesus will call him in the body of the Scripture that we're going to look at today. Jesus would call him the teacher in Israel. If you were here last Sunday morning, I told you that when Jesus met the woman at the well in Samaria, she was the last person you would think Jesus would talk to. Today, we have let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side. Jesus shows up in Israel. This is the first guy you would expect Jesus to hang with. Nick, Nicodemus. He is very religious. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish community. And beyond that, of the Sanhedrin, he is considered the leading scholar in Israel. And one night, he shows up to talk to Jesus. But there's a problem with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a wannabe. Nicodemus is a hypocrite. He does not have on the inside what he needs. And so he shows up and he talks to Jesus. And in this conversation in verses 1 through 3, I want to show you three characteristics of a wannabe. If you're you know, maybe, maybe you're the person here today who's a wannabe. Maybe you deal with other people. But there are three clear characteristics of a wannabe in Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus. Here is the first one. They deal in evaluation. 
Nicodemus says to Jesus, now here's the thing. I want you to get this in your mind. Nicodemus has shown up to talk religion with Jesus. He has shown up to hang with Jesus. He has shown up to give him his good housekeeping seal of approval. Nicodemus is the man. He's the spiritual teacher. And Jesus is kind of on the outs with some of the people in the religious community. So Nicodemus has come by to give Jesus his blessing, his seal of approval, his stamp of authenticity. Nicodemus is coming by to chat religion, one leader to another leader. And here's what he said. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Because nobody could do these miracles that you're doing. Nicodemus said, we, we've sized you up, and we've figured out that you're okay. That's one of the elements of a wannabe. And I've watched it in churches all my life. Wannabes are always into evaluation. You let a wannabe go to church, when they, come, when they move away from church, here's what they're going to do. They're going to give a score. They're going to evaluate church. They're going to talk about how they felt about things. And they may be positive. Nicodemus was positive here. He, he came to Jesus and said, I'm, I'm checking you out, and I'm evaluating you, and, and I give you a 10. But wannabes always deal in evaluation. Why? Why? Because if I can evaluate, I'm superior, and the message doesn't judge me, I judge the message. As long as I can evaluate... I set myself up, and I don't have to hear the message. I can say, I like this sermon better than this sermon. I like this song better than this song. I like this church better than this church. As long as I'm a wannabe, I deal in evaluations. I had to go to the grocery store for Mary Alice the other day. I'm dangerous in the grocery store, I tell you. And I don't know where anything is. You know, she gives me a list, and, and I think, you know, Miraz just whizzes through the grocery store. She knows where everything is. And I, I mean, I, I'm like lost. Takes me an hour to find six things. So I was already frustrated with that and got all the stuff, and I was going out to my car, and it was at night, late at night, and there weren't too many people in the parking lot, and it took me a while to get the stuff out of the basket into the car. And there were two guys standing next to me by the trunk of a car. And they were discussing churches in Wichita. And, you know, I was there long enough. And, and I, I'm going to be honest with you. Could I just confess this? Okay, confession is good for the soul. Once this started happening, I started slowing down, you know. <laughs> putting my stuff in the car. Because I thought, well, maybe they'll start talking about Messiah. And I can find out what's going on in my own church. Because they clearly seem to know everything about all these churches in town. And they never did. They never got to Messiah. And that's bad because you could have seen the church from the parking lot. Now you know I was a target. So anyway, I'm standing there and I'm putting my stuff in the car and I'm listening to them. And they talk about this church and they talk about that church and they're evaluating this preacher and they're talking about the politics in this church and that church. Now the thing is, I happen to be close friends with all the pastors of the churches they're talking about and I knew two things. Number one, they were clueless as to what was going on in those churches really. But the main thing I knew was they were wannabes. See, wannabes evaluate. Real followers of Jesus talk about what God is doing. They talk about who Jesus is and the power of God. Wannabes get caught up in church politics because what that does, it allows them to be the hypocrite that they are and never look inside. I like this better than this. I like this sermon better than this sermon. And, you know, I can get caught up in that, too. I've, you know, go to a conference. Well, you know, I sort of think this speaker was a seven, and this speaker was a nine, this speaker was a three. 
That's a wannabe. That's conclusion number one. Wannabes get caught up in evaluation. Number two. Here's the second thing. Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher that has come from God. We know. Wannabes hang with other wannabes so that they can get affirmation for what they think. That's the thing. Now, Nicodemus here is probably talking about the Sanhedrin or a group of guys at the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is saying, now, you know, I'm coming here with this evaluation, but it isn't just me. There are others who think the same thing. Now, here's the deal. I want to tell you, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. If you go with me, praise God. If you don't go with me, I still believe what I believe. I want, I want company. That's what the church is all about. I want to be with other people who believe. But if you, you know, if you put me alone, if you put me somewhere where I'm not surrounded by anybody else who believes what I believe, I'll guarantee you I still believe what I believe. That's how followers of Jesus are. Wannabes have to be with the crowd. And Nicodemus doesn't have the courage to say, this is what I think about you. He is saying, we know. Now, he didn't know. He was wrong. And he thought he knew something he didn't know. He said, we know you're a teacher come from God. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. Nicodemus said, I got you evaluated. I know where you fed. And it isn't just me. There are others who think like I think. And the third thing that I find that's a real characteristic of a wannabe is fear. Fear. Notice that he came at night. The Bible will tell us later that Nicodemus will not step out of the shadows and follow Jesus because of the fear of the Jews. Fear. I've met a lot of wannabes as a pastor for the 30 years. A lot of them. And they can be superior in their attitudes. They can be judgmental in their evaluations. And they can hang with others who will confirm their suspicions. But I never met a hypocrite. I never met a wannabe who wasn't governed by his fears. I've never met a wannabe who wasn't governed by fear. Now, if you're a wannabe here today, there may be a lot I don't know about you, but there's one thing I do know. I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid. You may not think about it all the time, but there are nights when you wake up in the middle of the night and you ask yourself, what would happen if I were to die? When you get away from the crowd, when you get away from the others who confirm your thoughts, when nobody's asking you for your evaluation, when you get stripped down to bare metal at some point, it is your fears that govern you. It is your fears that lead to your evaluations. It is your fears that characterize your Christian experience. I find that interesting, don't you? All three of those elements are here in the first part of John 3. Here is Nick, Nicodemus. He's the leading teacher in Israel. He's the first guy you would think who would hang with Jesus. And yet he's a wannabe. He's a hypocrite. And he's saying to Jesus, hey, I came here to evaluate you, and I feel really good about you. I have a good feeling about you, and there's a bunch of us who think the same thing. And we know that you're a teacher come from God, but I'm coming at night because I don't want anybody else to see me coming. Now, here's what's really interesting to me about Jesus' response that we're about to read. Nicodemus, being the scholar that he was and encountering Jesus, he might not have been surprised if Jesus had said to him, Nicodemus, you know, you're pretty smart and you're a great leader. You just got to do some fine-tuning, buddy. You need to go back to grad school. You need to go back to seminary, a couple of courses back there. You need to take some, you need to take some, some refresher courses that maybe you didn't get when you were in seminary. And, and Jesus saying, you know, I'm a young rabbi and I've come from God, like you said. And Nicodemus, you know, you're way up there. You're a lot higher than everybody else. But I've been kind of watching you. And, and there's a, you, you need to go back to college. You need to go back and shore up some areas where you're, where you're thin. I don't think Nicodemus would have been too stretched by that. But let's look at Jesus' response. 
Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got to go back to the nursery. Jesus is not off-put at all by his wannabeism. His evaluation has made absolutely no difference to Jesus at all. Jesus goes right to the heart of what is wrong with Nicodemus. In effect, he is saying, you must be born over again. Wow, that strips the pain off. And Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, this is troublesome to some people because they say, water and the Spirit. Oh, that means you have to be baptized and you have to be born of God. Or some people will say, no, this is not water baptism that Jesus is talking about. Sometimes the Bible, is, the Word of God is called the water of the Word. So some people think that it means that you have to be born of the Word of God and of the Spirit of God. But if you just follow the context, you can see exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, you've got to be born over again. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. So he's saying that you got one birth already. We're going to call that the water birth. When a woman's pregnant, she's in the last hours of her pregnancy. What is something that will send the husband and wife, the mom and the dad, to the hospital racing? A woman will say her what is broken. Her water is broken. Yeah. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you've been born of the water. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But that's not enough. He said spirit. Look at this. Spirit gives birth to spirit. So you've had a flesh birth. You've had a water birth. But you're going to have to have a spiritual birth. Verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, gang, let me tell you this. There's a big question today about which religion is right. Could I tell you that no religion is right? you got to be born over again. You say, well, I, I think there's some good in, in all religions, and some people think this, and some people think that. Do you realize what you think and what you do and where you go to church and the rituals you perform will do absolutely nothing for you except leave you being a wannabe? Jesus said, you've got to be born of the Spirit. You have to have a new birth. Okay. Nicodemus, verse 9. How can this be? This is just an aside. If you were here last week, you remember the Samaritan woman? She didn't understand anything Jesus said, but she wanted it. Nicodemus has got his hand out like this. I don't understand this. You're telling me I'm an old man and I have to go back and be born again? There's no way I can go back to my mother's womb and start life over again. Jesus said, I wasn't talking about that. There's a water birth. There's a spirit birth. You got to have the spirit birth. Okay. Nicodemus should understand. He said, I still don't understand this. Verse 10, Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher. And do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We, notice now Jesus, Nicodemus said, we got a, I got a we here. You know, we've been looking at you. And, and the way we look at this, this is how we see you. And Jesus said, let me tell you the way we see you. <laughs> you see that? One more time. Look at that one more time. 
Jesus said, uh, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, I don't know. When I was a kid and I read this, I always struggled. What is Jesus trying to say here? It's real simple. You go back to Nicodemus' first conversation with Jesus. He said, you know, we've been sizing you up. The way we look at this, you're a teacher that's come from God. We're giving you our good, good housekeeping seal of approval. We like you. And Jesus is saying, I don't care anything about that. You've got to be born all over again. Nicodemus is saying, I can't. And Jesus is saying, listen to me. You have to be born of spirit. Nicodemus is saying, you know, I'm a scholar. And the way we look at it, we don't understand that at all. This does not compute with us. And Jesus is saying, I come from someplace else. I came from heaven. And this is how we look at it. You getting that? This is how we look at it. So see, that's what happens with some of us. I mean, this is what happens in our culture today. We start looking at God from this perspective. And we say, well, you know what? As long as you're probably a good person and you're okay, and it doesn't really matter which religion you follow as long as you're sincere, what we're saying, God, this is, this is how we look at it. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you how heaven looks at it. Heaven says you have to be born all over again. Now, when I go to heaven, quite honestly, I'm not going to be the judge of what happens to me. I do not have the power to control what happens to me. Heaven has the power to control what happens to me. Doesn't it make sense that I better get a clue and take a look at it from how it looks from heaven's perspective? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you haven't been to heaven. You may be a teacher, a leading teacher in Israel. You may sit on the Sanhedrin. You may be a very religious guy. You may have come here to evaluate me. But I got to tell you, the way heaven looks at it, you got to be born again. And could I tell you and me, heaven still looks at it that way. Heaven says, have to be born again. Let's read. How do you do that? Verse 14, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus looked into the eyes of the most religious man in the world and said, Nicodemus, your religion is not enough. And you will notice, as I noticed, that getting out of this life and getting into the next life is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Jesus gives Nicodemus an illustration. It comes back from, the, from, back from the Old Testament when the Israelites were going through the wilderness and they got, you know, they got crossways with God and disobeyed him and kind of blew God off and God sent poisonous snakes into the desert and started biting them and a lot of them were dying thousands of them were dying and the people were crying out to Moses for help and Moses said God what will I do and God said Moses you need to take a pole and put a, a serpent a snake on that serpent a brass snake and go throughout the camp and anybody who looks up at that snake and believes that God would heal them from the bite of that snake they would be healed and that's exactly what happened Nicodemus or, or Moses had that serpent put up on a pole, and the people looked at it, and those who had faith were healed. And Jesus said, as, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, Jesus, speaking of himself, said, I have to be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And Jesus said, anyone who believes 
on me, on Christ, would have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it gets right down to that. That is the difference between a real follower of Jesus and a wannabe. Wannabes will always attach to the religion. Wannabes will always attach to a system. And what's really scary about that, and I've been in church all my life and I've watched this happen, every religion has its system. You know what? This church has a system. We don't, not a real good one, you know. All you people who say, we don't like organized religion, we say you'll love Messiah because we really struggle with organization. <laughs> but yeah, there's a system here. You know, there's a system. If you come to rehearsal, you get to be in the choir. If you, you know, if you come to teacher training, you'll probably get involved in teaching ministry here. And, and yeah, there's evaluation that goes on, and I'm not trying to say that there isn't, but you know, you know, if a person's really skillful, they can sort of navigate through that system and maybe say the right things. And they can tell Lance the right things and tell me the right things and tell Rick the right things. And, you know, and before long, they sort, of, they sort of make their way through. But remember this. Systems do not save. It will not matter if you become a teacher or a choir member or even a pastor. Systems do not save. People go to heaven because they realize they have nothing to offer within themselves and they look at the Son of God who died for them and then rose from the grave and say, my only hope is in Jesus. I don't have anything. I don't bring anything. I'm coming to Jesus. I'm humbling myself. Well, let me close by saying this. Somebody could say, Mark, you've watched a lot of hypocrites through the years and and you say, you ask the question, is there any hope for a hypocrite? There is. But it's, it's a big if. The Bible says you have to repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? I've thought about that many times. You know, what does it mean to repent? Repent obviously means a change of mind. That's the, what the actual Greek words means. But let me, give you a modern, let me give you a modern expression of what it means to repent. Repentance means losing your attitude. You hearing me? I meet a lot of Christians who say they've repented, but they still have their attitude. Repentance means you lose the tude. You lose the attitude. And you come to God, and you humble yourself before Him. And you're willing to be broken before Him, and you're willing to admit who you are before God and before people. And you say, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus. And if you're willing to lose the attitude you have a chance to come to Christ. Now, I guarantee you, I've made some of you very angry by this message, very uncomfortable. If I did, I didn't intend to. But my hope and my prayer is that you'll come face to face with where you really are. Your only hope for peace and joy is being real before God. For others of you today, you've got a brand new hope. And the Lord wants to work in your life. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And uh, we're going to have just a brief song and a chance for you to open your heart before God. But if you're here today and, and you just say, man, Mark, that, I really want to lose the want. I, want, I don't want to be a wannabe. I want to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. Then you can pray with me and you can receive Christ at this moment with every head bowed and eye closed and Christians praying. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm nothing without you. I don't have tr- confidence in my system or 
growing up in church or my background, but I trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Lord, come into my life and save me. Cleanse me, forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen.